Elite Physique University, your source for all things physique enhancement. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Elite Physique University. I'm John Gorman, your host. We've got Jason Theobald back in the house. Jason, how's your Thursday, man? Not too bad. Uh, I can't say it's as sunny as the last time we recorded. It's a little rainy here, but, you know, we've turned the corner, so things are decently, at least at 65. Um, so, you know, not too bad. Yeah, we're almost about to head down to Tampa, which is where our guest Scott's from. And Scott, we're going to get to you here in just a few. But Jason, we're about to head down for the Elite Physique University seminar. We've only got one or two tickets left because okay. of COVID. So we're, we're pretty much at our threshold and it's going to be fun. Um, so by the time this drops, I, I don't think people are going to be able to get tickets. So if you are listening, you're going to be down there. It's going to be a blast. We're going to go to Powerhouse Gym. I just talked to, uh, thanks to you, Scott, got the, got the name of the guy I need to talk to down there. So we're going to be headed to Powerhouse to train. Um, great gym. And uh, it's going to be a blast, man. So real quick, just any kind of uh, housekeeping, anything new with you? I know you got some new products getting ready to hit. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. Uh, so Ideal Immunity dropped today. Um, so we're, we're excited about that. We had tons of people just keep asking us to put together a, an immunity product, you know, with COVID and everything going on. So we finally just answered the bell. Um, so that dropped today. You can check that out at newethics.com. I'll have it on my site. I'm a wholesaler eventually to scoobyprep.com. Um, and Metapure is back. So, I mean, I was answering so many questions from coaches that needed that. That is back in stock. Um, and Thyroboost, finally, we have a date, March 29th, in Warehouse. So I should be able to get that up on to newethics.com uh, by probably the April 1st. So that's, that's promising, too. Um, as far as me, you know, uh, business is steady. I'm onboarding probably one to two clients a week. I, I'm not really going crazy with it. I'm just kind of maintaining my numbers, and I have a, a good group of people. So um, people can hit me up if, if you're curious to work with me. Um, Spent the last five days in Naples. Well, I got back Tuesday, but I went down Thursday. Uh, my buddy Billy Nestor's down there and um, met him through coaching, and we've just gotten close. And he let me use his house uh, with a special someone um, for about five days. So we, we, we beached it. We, we, we trained. We had good eats every night. And um, it was a really good and uh, a battery recharging experience. So uh, all in all, things are – things are good here, man. Awesome, man. Yeah. I let people know. I said, we'll probably have fire boost up on the fat muscle website probably yes. sometime a little bit later in April once you guys can ship it. So yep. I'm going to keep mine short and sweet. I'm getting ready to drive down to Tampa because my truck's going to be loaded up. I'm going to be meeting with quite a few people, coaches down there to show them the supplement line that they wanted to meet up. Restock like Titans gym. You've been down there, Jason. Yep. It's You guys had a uh, seminar series down there. I'm going to meet up with mm -hmm. them and restock them. But we just launched this new product. It's uh, Fat Snacks. It's probably backwards if you're if you're looking at it on no, YouTube. No, it's right. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a fat powder. So you, you see a lot of people with carb powders and um, you know, things like dextrose or powder sweet potato or, you know, real food. This is actually a fat powder and there's 30 servings. It's seven fats and it's basically caramel cheesecake flavored and uh, it makes your shakes taste awesome. So we have a lot of people that like to bake and stuff like that or just throw it shakes. So we ended up launching that. But is it a long yes, chain or a medium chain or a blend or? It's a blend. Yeah, it's okay. got a little bit of MCTs. Not a lot to cause stomach upset, but um, yeah, you know, you have too many MCTs, you shit yourself. So it's not, yep. it's not like that. It's only about a gram of MCT, but it's, it's a nice blend and it tastes good. I'll have it down there, man. So if you want to, if you want to test your gut, I know you don't, yeah. you haven't had a lot of stuff lately. So if you want to test it, we'll, well, uh, 
I, I don't even have problems with MCTs. I do like 10 grams pre and 10 grams post and I, I don't have any digestive problems. So whatever, I'm sure I'm good. Well, you're making yeah. my ass, you're making my ass clench just saying that. <laughs> so, um, but other than that, no, I'm getting ready to drive down. So it's going to be a good time, but, um, Dr. Scott Stevenson, welcome to the show, man. How, uh, how are things down there? If people tune in on YouTube, they can see you've got palm trees in the background. How's your week? How's your week been? I feel bad because everyone is envious of that background. It's not real, obviously, as we said before, <laughs> but it's not far from how it is. Sometimes um, I get a better connection in the house, so I just connect with the Ethernet. But every once in a while, I'll go out by my pool. I did a podcast like two weeks ago out by, by the pool. And literally, there's just palm trees behind me. It's pure green. There's, it's a jungle, literally, behind me. There are coyotes running around. There's alligators out there. There's, I see all sorts of you know, yeah, predatory birds and stuff. It's, it's pretty nice. So. I can't complain, man. I got, I'm pretty, uh, doing pretty well done in Florida for whatever reason is like, it's like almost like a COVID free zone, at least in terms of behavior and masks. Yeah. My, yeah. Life. Ha- you notice this probably when you're down in Naples, like they're even more strict down there. Naples is, uh, all your counties a little more strict. But, yeah. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, uh, the, I was there January 14th for my birthday mm. and we went out to a nice, uh, dinner. And then we went to just where the nightclubs are and just had a few drinks and stayed for a bit didn't even make us wear masks to get in. Everyone's yeah. on the dance floor, up in each other's faces. So that was even more than a month ago. Um, yeah. I'll tell you though, I come from, well, I'm in Kentucky. We mm-hmm. aren't that crazy, like with masks. Like I walk into grocery stores without it. No one says a word. Yeah. The liberal businesses like Starbucks and stuff still yell at you, but like mm-hmm. really speaking, Kentucky's fairly open. So it wasn't as much of a shock to me, but it is nice to see people just out on fifth Avenue, just no masks walking around. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's, yeah. uh, we, we, we do want to get into this, Scott, because you're, sure. you're someone that we've both wanted on this show for a while. Um, but Jason and I like to go back in time. We like to talk about kind of where we started or where we first started to hear about somebody. So Jason, when did you first start to hear about Scott? Where did you see some of his information put out? Um, yep. and then I'll kind of like tell you. This is a roast brewing here. Like, <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I've been around for a while, so Scott, so yeah, it's we have, man. back, you know, um, Decades. I would say somewhere on Skip's board, but also he would make uh, a, a journey over to muscular development. Um, I met him my first time. I don't know if I remember, but it was 2009 junior nationals. My first junior nationals, I was just a lightweight, but, uh, he was uh, there and we met at weigh-ins. Um, so uh, I've known I've known Scott for a while, and he's always put out good info for 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 us bodybuilding folk. Yeah, when it, go ahead, yeah, Scott. I was just a memory from that show. As it turned out, when I was weighing in, Sergio Oliva Jr. was right next to me in line. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. That was the big deal. That was his big, was a big deal. His first national level show. So, yeah, yeah that's just kind of cool to be able to like have seen those guys way back when. Way back John De La Rosa won, I think. I think Juan, you are correct. Juan Morel won his class. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So Went back quite a few years. Yep. So long ways. Yeah. Twelve We've been years at ago. it for a while. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. Let me let me crack this open and get this going. Right, <laughs> I got to get some caffeine. Um, Scott, I've I've got a pretty good story for you that I know you're not aware of because I think I've Uh-oh. probably Jason, you might be aware of this. So you wrote, you really impacted me back in, I think it was 2011. You had written this article and I believe it's for flex. And I know I'm probably, I might be butchering it, but I think you wrote an article for flex over hit cardio. And you talked about the differences between hit cardio and steady state. And at the time, 
Yeah. At the yeah. time you start talking about epoch and then I, I remember the word afterburn and that's when I first started to actually pay attention to how hit cardio work, the mechanisms of it, how it burns fat, you know, for a period of, you know, 24 hours after and a day after where steady state kind of burns it during. And me being the bro scientist that I am, I like to take things that I learn that have some science to them and apply that to my client base. So I went apeshit with it. And I took, I took that knowledge and I applied it in 2013 and 14. I actually measured this. I had 104 people hit the stage in those two years combined. Uh-huh. And only four people did steady state. Everyone else did just hit, just hit. And I had people doing wow. it two to three times a week. And a couple at the end would do it four to five. Uh-huh. And it was a mix of assisted natural athletes. And right. what I noticed over those two years was um, some of them were same repeat repeat clients. So their stage weight was a little higher. I was able to feed them more food. Uh-huh. They spent less time in the gym and I really became a believer in hit. I just mm. took it to the extreme. And it was mm. that experiment that I did that really opened my mind up, up to it and the differences. So, you know, I lectured on it and did a lot of things, but man, it was your article and it was mm. your information that put out that I never would have done that. Now I know I've got clients that did those those preps that are listening right now, they're like, fuck you, Scott Stevenson. I, putting that out. I, I thought you were going to say the outcome of that was that you lost a lot of clients. They did well. <laughs> and then they said, I'm not doing this shit again. And then yeah. everything back. Well, believe it or not, um, man, they actually preferred it because they spent less time in the gym, yeah, you right. know? So it was that kind of stuff. And you've put out a whole host of great information over the years. I do have kind of a bonus question here before we even start. Oh, okay. What was your name on the message boards? How do you pronounce it? And what the huh. hell does it mean? So it was homonunculus, yeah. which is a variation of homunculus. And you can look up homunculus as just a generic medical term for the mapping of some aspect of the body uh, in a representational way. So you'll see the, the classic homunculus shows like the sensory areas of, of the human relative to the sensitivity that they have and that you have in the different areas of your body. So you see a little, little homunculus man. He's got a really big head, really big hands, but his torso, his legs, everything is really small because your spatial discrimination, your hands and your face and your head is huge. Um, so that's like one homunculus. The other, and this is kind of where I got it for the bodybuilding purposes, but it's just kind of a bizarre term. There's the homunculus is the idea. It's ancient idea that, Basically, we're sort of a fully formed human in, in utero, and then you just basically grew in size. So I was, I was sort of going with the idea that I could be homo- a homunculus and just grow in size as every bodybuilder dreams of doing. Um, and so I figured at that time, people weren't very creative with their names. It didn't seem like online, and people, no one was using their real name. So I'm like, I'm going to use homunculus, I'm going to make a variation on the name so that no one's going to want to steal that. I won't go to some other board and have someone show my name. No one's using homunculus anywhere they've ever seen right. before. But I didn't even make them a favorite. Again. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was my security, you know, to make even a, a, a variation on a medical term that no one knows what it, what it even means unless they Google it. Yeah, I, and I didn't. Yeah. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to save this. That's going to be kind of our, our opening question because I know we have yeah. people from the boards that are still around that are listening to this. And they're like, oh, right. that's, that's what that meant. So um, There's a real- side to that too that I'll throw out is that Dante Trudell would never, like maybe his autocorrect did this, but he never once spelled that name properly in, <laughs> in, in 12 years on intense muscle. And he'd refer to me all the time. 
he just put people would put homo of course i got right. plenty of that for <laughs> short and, uh, yeah and and it variations but if you try to like search for a post by dog crab dante trudell with homonunculus you won't you'll have zero hits out of like twenty thousand posts that dante's had because he never spelled it properly hilarious Oh man, those were uh, those were some good times, and and I want to spend a little bit of time going over what we're going to do today. So, cool. um, man, you've been on so many podcasts, you've talked at seminars all over the place. You're slated to speak at our Physique Summit conference um, coming up. As long as we can get COVID to cooperate, and little do people know, as Jason and I and you had been talking about, you actually speaking at this seminar we're going to be at now. We're just so limited. So yeah. you put out a lot of content and this book to me, I'm going to show it to people here if you're watching YouTube and I'm going to link this in the show notes, be your own bodybuilding coach. Um, we're going to do a Q and a out of some really awesome things that I highlighted in the book. So um, I do want to ask you though, when did you know you wanted to write this book and how long did it take you? Uh, it, some of it actually, I, I have to give some credit to John Meadows because he and I started talking about coming up with the book when he, before he even, around the time when he was thinking about forming Granite Supplements. Mm -hmm. So we started forming a book to some degree, and then John started kind of going in that direction, and he was spending time there. And, and I just said, hey, John, I think this is, I, I actually was starting like, I was creating the intellectual property that was the book. The ideas were kind of flowing from me, and he wanted to go that way with the supplements. So he kept me on, of course, if people remember in the early days of Granite Supplements, I was one of the spokespeople for him. He would, he would make me, I would, I helped do all the write-ups for the supplements they had. And then he'd make me memorize all the ingredients so I could spout them off over like a 10 minute video. It's like, like, I was like, how many digits do I need to memorize pi to here, John? What's like, what's my next memory task? And um, so that was sort of the origin. And I, I remember it was, I remember pretty clearly when I came up with the, like, what are we gonna do with this book? Is it gonna be about training? Is it gonna be about, you know, diet? Like what's gonna be the angle? And then I thought, you know, I started thinking about how I want people to move through what I want them to glean from bodybuilding. And I thought, you know, how about something that just sort of teaches them to be able to have the choice at least to not work with the coach and figure this out on their own. Like a lot of us had to way back in the day when there weren't coaches around. There weren't very many coaches really doing this back in 2000, you know, the early nineties, no. not like there is now at all. You just help, everyone just help one another. So <clears throat> the be your own bodybuilding coach thing, I, there's nothing out there like that. It, it's the irony of it is it's really kind of a way to shoot myself in the foot <laughs> as a coach in one, in one way, but not really because the way I do coaching now, and this is sort of an, an offshoot, but I just do consultations for the most part with people rather than weekly check-ins where you're just, telling them things they know, they could probably guess what you're going to say as far as what to change in the diet, or you're going to add 10 more minutes to their cardio or whatever it might be. Instead, I have people call in on a per an ad hoc basis as needed. And so they have like two or three days to think about what their questions might be, which means they develop better questions. And they usually come up with answers to their own questions before we even talk. So they just the, the delay and not feeding them information, but forcing them to sort of be their own coach, so to speak, before they even talk with me is a great way to uh, encourage learning. And people just, it's, it's funny, like people will sometimes come to me and say, I don't even know what to talk about today. I've even had a couple, we just hung up. There's no need, no need to have the talk because they figured out the answers. It doesn't happen very often. But so that was sort of the idea was to give people, and I, I get so many, 
I just get messages all the time. It's so gratifying. Like a guy just, I just responded to his message today and he's just like, you've just totally revamped my way of looking at, looking at things. And now, and this is in no way um, to disparage the whole coaching profession, but I remember a couple of years ago, I was at one of the gyms here in town and I was talking to a couple of guys behind the desk and they were saying, um, you know, I'm looking to do my first show. I got to find a coach. And I'm like, well, why do you got to find a coach? And they're like, what do you mean? It's like I, I said, well, you don't have to. I was like, I was telling them they don't have to eat. They don't have to drink water. Like, they don't have to breathe. Like, it was just a pure assumption that they had to have a coach to do this. And that's just their perspective because that's what they see. It makes total sense. So this is my way of just like putting a little wedge into a room where people don't have the light to see that possibility is there that you can really do a lot of this on your own. And, you know, you're, if you're a Phil Heath, you're going to, you're going to rise to the top really fast. Your genetics are going to dictate so much of what happens. So maybe you get ninth instead of fifth because you didn't work with a coach for some people, not everyone. Some people, this is a, this is, a, it's not going to work at all. Just, they would just be completely bamboozled and flustered and anxious. They would drop the ball. Everything would just, it would, it would be a nightmare. But for some people, this is a great way to like learn through their mistakes, maybe pick the things from my book, learn on their own and become very, very astute. And maybe even down the road realize that, well, that coach and that coach, and that coach, they're full of shit. They don't have anything to offer me because I know this is wrong because I've looked into it. I don't know how to better find the person that will help them when they really do need it. Eventually, you know, everyone runs up against the end of their own knowledge. So they may actually need or want a coach. I personally like, I like to be in that fumbling zone because it, it promotes personal growth. So I kind of like to make mistakes and do stupid shit and, and push my limits because that's, I'm not going to be, uh, you know, I'm not going to be on the Olympia stage. You know, I'm not, I don't have a pro caliber uh, physique, at least in my opinion. For me, this is about learning as much as I can and then sort of paying it forward whenever I can as well. Yeah. So for some people, it's an option. It's not for everybody. Some people want to coach. It's best for them. Others <clears throat> not. But this, this way I could do a brain dump and give people kind of a roadmap from which they could, um, you know, at least have something to, to lead them along the way when they're stumbling towards a show day. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's a hell of a brain dump by the way, because I'm going to oh, put thanks. this book over really quick. I bought it as soon as it came out. Uh, Lauren Conlon, I was over at her house visiting a yeah. couple of years ago. She had had it there and I ordered it immediately. It's right when it first came out, really it's 2018. And Listen, I've got friends that have written all kinds of books. Lane's written a book, great book. Cliff Wilson and Pete have written a book. I've written three books myself. Nothing for the sport of bodybuilding goes into the depth of bodybuilding and the science behind it like this book does. And if there was ever a textbook that was going to be created for a course, and I, you know, knock, knock on Dr. Bill Campbell's door, if there right. ever a textbook, this is literally the equivalent to a textbook. I mean, how many you have, a, I know you probably don't know off the top of your head, but probably close. How many references, scientific references do you have in the back? I mean, that alone blew my mind. It's like 2,400 or something like that. It's yeah. It's insane. It's, it's a lot, like two and a half, almost two and a half thousand. Yeah. And the nice thing, and this is, um, I mean, I made the, oh gosh, it was a nightmare to format this thing. And I, I apologize because literally it was so big that I had all sorts of issues converting the file format to make it into a, um, a PDF because it's just gigantic things just I literally yeah. exceeded the computational capacity from of my like you know sort of layperson software I should have got another software package but um, those all those references are hyperlinked in the PDF and if you buy the Kindle which you get on Amazon so if people like rabbit holes as I do 
you can be reading along and I've also got, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of hyperlinks for topics. So you're reading along and maybe I mentioned essentialist amino acids, I think we may talk about today. You can click on that, it'll take you to the section of the book. Then you can start reading on essential amino acids. Let's say I say something about leucine, like that's fascinating. I had no idea that was the case. And you click on that, it'll take you to those references. And whenever I had a URL that was in the reference, Otherwise, you could just type in the title and find it. But oftentimes, there's a, click, a link you can click to go right to the paper itself, which will launch you in your browser. So you can just like, you know, go off on a two-hour tangent diving down the research uh, trail, if you like, and then come back to the book and continue from where you are. So I tried to make it sort of a re that's why I call it a, a reference, so to speak, yeah. or a resource, because it gives you some information, a, a place to start, and then a whole shitload of references and. People, I've even been criticized in the past, like you're so, uh, you know, you're so hoity-toity, you know, with your, with your, all your references and, you know, like, like, you're, but I really think if you're going to make something of an intellectual, make some sort of a statement like that, that's of a scientific nature that, that isn't absolutely obvious, like, you know, humans have skeletal muscle, you know, okay, no one's going to argue that, then you really should have some sort of substantiation for that. And a lot of times people don't. Right. And this way, this way you're, you're providing, you know, depth of information, which I, literally it's a scientific standard to do that. If you actually say things that aren't properly referenced, that can be an academic integrity violation in many universities to not do so. You can be plagiarizing things, but just not to reference properly. So and there's a reason for that because, you know, the information builds on itself historically year after year, decade after decade. So, if you're going to build an argument that, you know, about some dietary approach or what have you, and the pieces are being put together, you need to put resources for that. Imagine you're an engineer and you're trying to put together a building and you need to get steel of some sort of, um, with some sort of mechanical properties that you know will support the things that are going on top of that as you build the structure of the building. Well, you want to know, you want to have the spec sheet on all those building materials. Otherwise, you've got a building that comes crumbling down. So that's just like a standard. It's a pain in the ass for some people. I actually enjoy it. It's fun. It makes another, makes another level to the puzzle as you sort of piece things together. But I could write out an article and just not, not cite anything and be done within 10 minutes. Or if it's brand new information, like as an example, some of the articles on John Meadows sites, I had to, um, I've had to people ask me like, how does it take you to do those? You know, in terms of how much I should charge for them. It'll take me 30 hours to write a, um, like a 10 page paper. Yeah. So, and that's just because, you know, I read those articles. I download them. I read them. You know, I skim through, and most of the stuff I can kind of, you know, I can skim over because I know what the methods are. But so that's another level, which I think is just, it's just nice for people to have as a starting place. Right. For, uh, for basic scientific information. Well, we're going to get into some of these questions. And if you're listening and have the book, um, you can follow along. So let's just jump right into this. Um, on page 157, you talk about metabolic flexibility and insulin sensitivity. So we haven't really taught, we haven't used the word, the term metabolic flexibility um, and how that pairs up with insulin sensitivity. So if you would just go ahead and talk about what metabolic flexibility is for our listeners. It's a real, real, I, it's just, I can usually use an analogy with this. It's a very simple term. There's nothing really fancy about it. Metabolism just is the sum of all the metabolic processes, all the, all the enzymatically different processes that are happening from a basic biological perspective in your body. And flexibility in this particular context is an ability for your metabolism to choose primarily the way we've spoken of here from either fat, 
or carbohydrate as a fuel source. So if, if an individual or even like a tissue, skeletal muscle is the one you can most normally apply it to, is highly metabolically flexible, if you present it with a massive load of fat, in the form of free fatty acids or albumin-bound fatty acids in the blood, a metabolically flexible skeletal muscle tissue is really is able to oxidize that and use it for fuel easily. So it can choose from fat. As an example of a, like the most penultimate metabolically flexible tissue I know of is the heart. They do, they do experiments with the heart and you can literally feed it pyruvate, lactate, fatty acids, glucose, ketones, amino acids. It, it's got so much mitochondria and it's such a workhorse, it can use whatever you want, whatever you feed it, as long as it's a, some sort of a carbon backbone that can fit into the metabolic pathways for energy production, it'll kick its butt. So a metabolically inflexible skeletal muscle, for instance, might be one, and we, here we can get into some of the details. Like for instance, one of the things that tends to happen is when blood free fatty acid levels are high, skeletal muscle, especially if, there's, if it has poor flexibility, can't take up glucose that's available to it very well and store it as glycogen. If you have skeletal muscle that has lots of fat in it, intramuscular triglycerides inside the cells, or even worst case scenario, you've got an individual who's obese and has what you would call ectopic fat. This is what you might see like in a really fatty slab of meat. Because so a lot of that fat is ectopic, so to speak, is yeah. outside the cells. Um, that's a situation where you're going to have probably very poor metabolic flexibility. So glycogen storage isn't very good. Um, and also to connect us with the next thing I think we're going to get to, insulin sensitivity is poor. So as an example, to kind of piece things together, hopefully this is something that will click with people. What you tend to see is greater metabolic flexibility when you have better insulin sensitivity. So at rest, if you elevate free fatty acids, if you had a fatty meal and you take in some carbohydrates with that, so if you have poor insulin sensitivity, the glucose disposal, taking those carbs and forming glycogen out of them inside the muscle cells won't happen all that well. But if you've just exercised and you've increased insulin sensitivity and also reduced the glycogen level somewhat, you can even store glycogen just as well with, in the face of all those free fatty acids um, as if it weren't there because you've got better metabolic flexibility, you've got better insulin sensitivity. So it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically, it's the metabolic flexibility idea is that the tissues, skeletal muscle tissues, which is the one we're sort of focused on, of course, are able to use whatever fuel you, you, you supply it with in, in the diet, fats or carbohydrate. And it can, so it doesn't have a problem switching between those. So it's this, to some degree, and this is where we can't, we can't defeat the laws of thermodynamics, but to some degree, if you've got a situation where you can't easily do that, let's say you can't, you've been eating carbohydrates and all of a sudden you have a lot of fat, a metabolically inflexible fat muscle cell wouldn't be able to take up and use that fat or store it in the cell. Instead, it's going to end up somewhere else in the main fat storage depot, unfortunately, in many cases, in your adipose, in your subcutaneous or your visceral fat stores. So metabolic inflexibility is something that would could tend to mean that you store more fat as body fat rather than oxidize it, which is what we want to do in the insulin sensitive person or the metabolically flexible person. Yeah. And you know, I read something really interesting when I was studying for my CISSN through the ISSN in one of their textbooks, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, and it talked about, you know, having a decent amount of fats and carbs, you know, after you work out 
you know, most of the time with a lot of people, they're thinking, okay, have your carbs, have a little bit lower fat, or if you're going to have more fats, keep your carbs a little lower. And, um, and I can't remember who wrote this at the time, but they talked about the fact that after a workout, if you have higher fats and carbs together, have a big meal, maybe even a free meal right there, your body takes the fats actually fuel the processes in the body while carbs get stored as glycogen to some extent. And it always made sense to me, you know, people say, well, you want low fat and higher carbs after workout. Well, if you're ever going to have a free meal or a fatty meal with carbs after your workout is probably the best time because your body's going to be able to still like, kind of like you said, still store some glycogen, but that fat's going to help fuel some of the process of restoring the body back to normal. Is that something that, that you would agree with? Yeah, so there's, I, I mentioned that before, the, post, the, the data are there in, in humans. Um, if you, and this, there's data actually in rats and, uh, and humans to this, or rodents and humans to this effect as well, that if you glycogen supercompensate, you can actually reduce the intramuscular triglyceride levels in doing so. So that idea, that's where the idea comes from, that it, when, when you're rapidly restoring glycogen or storing glycogen, your, your triglyceride levels can go down pretty substantially. And if you look at, it's somewhat variable, but if you look at um, some stuff from Scandinavia, a guy named Per Tesh, T-E-S-C-H, he's done a whole bunch of really cool shit. He was uh, one of the mentors to my mentor. He worked at NASA with him. They did a lot of research together back in the day. And Gary Dudley, who I, who I dedicated the Fortitude Training um, book to, they've demonstrated pretty substantial reductions in intramuscular triglyceride with resistance exercise. So then the, the quizzical thing about that, it's like, well, you know, fat can only be used pretty slowly relative to carbohydrate for ATP production, but you also have rest intervals in there as well. And what can happen, at least I've seen this, um, this has been done a little bit in resistance exercise, it's been done at high intensity interval training types of scenarios, where if you're feeding carbohydrate, let's say with an intra-workout in the case of someone in the gym, glycogen levels will go down during the course of the sets you do, and then it will be restored to some degree. And some of that's just, just reclaiming the lactate that will leave the cell. It comes back in and it can be, can be reprocessed back up the glycolytic chain into glycogen in that way. Some of it's from the insulin that's around from the carbohydrates and protein you've got and the carbohydrates going in there. But also when that, those carbs are coming in, if they're going to glycogen restoration, you still have a, a you have to restore the oxygen death that's created by the previous set. So you've got a secondary fuel source. Yeah, you've got fat, which you can do, which you can do that. So there's some mix of fat and glucose they're using to restore the oxygen jet, restore the imbalance uh, in ATP production, um, restore homeostasis in terms of the uh, it's called the phosphorylation potential in the in the muscle cell. It's very cool stuff how this all all works. And in the meantime, you're also restoring some glycogen. So absolutely, right at that point in time during the workout, you wouldn't want to probably eat. Maybe you're, this would actually be a reason for having that fat source in an intra-workout, the one you're, you're selling that's coming out soon. Because you do use, and I can send you that reference if you want. You can even use that in yeah. your, um, some of your average. Yeah, Peel Aline is the name of the first, first author on that. It was pretty cool stuff. Um, there's an article, I'll just throw this out, um, that I'm doing with um, Chris Barakat, Guillermo Escalante, Alan Aragon, and that, what's that guy's name? Brad Schoenfeld, something like that. <laughs> I have heard about him before. We're putting an article out on Peak Week. In the, in the research literature. So we're, we're just starting to get the reviewers' comments back now. And we have a large section on fuel use in that article. Just in and of itself is pretty interesting as far as those who are wanting to figure out like what's actually going on during resistance exercise and what does that mean in terms of restoring glycogen supercompensating, fat loading, 
you know, so I, I tossed in, um, that was part of my contribution was the, the notions of fuel use during, and then the, the fat loading thereafter and carbohydrate loading thereafter. So some pretty cool interactions there. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. So Jason, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this over to you. Um, because I know you and I are pretty similar to this. I want you to talk about um, protein fat versus protein carb meals, or just the idea of separating meals into protein carbs or protein fats. And then I want, we want, I want to get Scott's take on that. But I know that's something that both you and I are big believers in. Um, I first heard about it from Dante. As a matter of fact, he seemed to be a proponent of that. But Jason, just kind of break that down for our listeners. And then I've got, Scott, I've got a question for you right after. So. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's kind of how I'm approaching things right now. Um, you know, I'll, I'll do, I don't do any meal devoid of fat though. Um, for the listeners, you know, it's not like I'm, I have a meal in the morning. Um, so, but, but the meal will be, uh, so in the morning when I'm more insulin sensitive, I wake up, I have more of a protein carb based meal, but I still add 10 grams of extra virgin olive oil to the meal, but it's a lighter, uh, intake of, of, of fat. And my carbs are about 60 grams. Um, pre-workout again, I'll have 10 grams MCT, but again, it's 70 carbs. So it's a heavier carb meal. And then, uh, intra I'll do carbs and post is a repeat of what I just said for, for pre. Then as the day goes on, I tend more to fibrous carbs. So I'm only getting about maybe 10 grams of carbs, but I'm adding, you know, upwards of 20 grams of fat as my day goes on with the protein. Um, and, and the idea being that, you know, um, First, I'm taking carbs when I need them more around the workout. Mm -hmm. I'm taking them when I'm more insulin sensitive. And then also, you know, uh, carbs are spiking uh, insulin higher. Um, There's more of a need for it. And so, you know, I kind of take a bit less fat. So there's less of a likelihood to shuttle uh, to fat stores. Um, So that's always been my thinking on it. Um, I use the MCT because it's a medium chain. It burns a little faster, burns a little bit more like a carb. Um, and the thought process being, I won't store it as much, but it'll be available for immediate energy while I'm training. So I kind of bookend it. Um, so that's kind of uh, why I, I do it while I do it. Uh, sometimes for people in prep, I also am doing it right now for myself. Um, I tend to go a little high on, on my um, on my fasted glucose, but sometimes my postprandials as well. And so this seems to work well for my body to get the fuel when I need it, but to also keep blood sugars in a good spot. I'm a little bit more prone to, to uh, type two diabetes in the family and things. So mm-hmm. this has been a good way to eat for me. So. Mm-hmm. And the reason, the reason why I wanted to talk about that is because Jason and I have really, Scott, we've kind of talked a lot about insulin sensitivity, how to reset it and things over the years. I know that's an approach that we both use with our clients. Um, are you someone that kind of likes to use protein fat meals or protein carb meals? And if so, when did you first start to kind of think about, because to me, that's metabolic flexibility as well. When did you kind of yeah. start to piece all that together? Oh, well, I mean, this is, this is the nutrient timing approach that fosters right. metabolic flexibility. <laughs> so right. it's kind of two things. Oops. The, um, and you mentioned this in the notes you sent across the metabolic or the nutrient timing is something I started playing around with. Like, I want to say it was like 1999 or 2000 or something like that. Yeah. Um, there was a book called uh, the term we used was insulin loading, but this was not with exogenous in- insulin loading. The author was Thomas Fahey. Uh, my hack, my Facebook was hacked, but I used to be Facebook friends with him. He's in, uh, he was a Cal State Chico, maybe a, a professor there. And he was a world-class Olympian level discus thrower. 
and he wrote this book where he had uh, he had a, a study that was I think unpublished, but the idea was to use just massive amounts of carbohydrate to jack up insulin levels during a workout. The idea being that insulin is was anabolic or at least anti-catabolic. But if you have protein there, there's some there's some literature suggesting that if you increase blood flow of the skeletal muscle and thus delivery of the amino acids that you can produce an anabolic effect in the local skeletal muscle. So that's where I first kind of clued into that. And Milos was doing a lot of yeah. those sorts of things at the time. And I started working my way up. I started do, I was doing DC training. I started, started then doing a little bit of interworkout. And then eventually you wanted me to mention the story. I think eventually I just, I like to sort of see where the line is and just be sure that that's the line by going past it <laughs> in various ways. So I worked my way up to like, it was over a 2000 calorie intra-workout that I, was, that I was eating. Damn. But that was in the course of a 6,000 calorie day. Mm -hmm. And that was only on training days was I had, well, at that point in time, I was just eating as much as I could. I think there wasn't much nutrient timing, but that's as far as I've gone the, with the nutrient timing. But take it back to someone, let's say, who doesn't have to eat 6,000 calories to move their weight up. Um, what I would typically do with someone is do just what Jason was saying is, is the whole idea is that you've got a situation, you, you're, you're trained for a very specific reason. You're creating a stimulus to provide um, a reason for there to be an adaptive growth response over time, the muscle grows, you're creating an increase in insulin sensitivity that's going to foster that carbohydrate and even the fats that would be there being oxidized and or stored in skeletal muscle. And you've also got, and this goes back, you mentioned the EPOC studies, some of the most impressive ones, and there's been a couple more since I wrote that article showing that you can have, you know, 800 calories of excess post-exercise oxygen consumption beyond a resting state from a really brutal workout. The one study by a shittier, I think that was the last, Schulte or Schutte, something like that was the, the name of the first author. They did, I think, four sets each of a squat, a bench press, and I think a, a power clean or maybe it was a hang clean to failure with a minute's rest in between like 10 to 12 reps. So just imagine the squats. Imagine, yeah. like, imagine like four or five is your squat rep max for 10. Imagine doing a set and then they drop the weight down to adjust and then they drop it down again and you do four sets like that. And then you go, you do the same thing with a bench press, a little bit easier and then a hang clean. And that was the whole workout. It lasted like 28 minutes, but it, but the metabolism was highly elevated. So there's even a reference that I have in my fortitude training book showing that in muscle has been extremely damaged, probably because the damage itself will prevent glycogen storage, but it also increases the metabolic rate. The muscle's trying to repair itself. You can actually have a decline in glycogen stores, even in the face of a massive carbohydrate intake over the next day, because you've just got such energy demand from the repair requirements. Even some of the, the, the protein related research now where they've tried to correlate the initial protein synthetic responses that you have like at the very start of a two or three month training program with how much muscle you grow, would, would make sense if you if you assume that that first workout is representative of the protein synthetic response brought on by a singular workout well you'd expect just repeating that x number of times over the months those who have the more robust response at the start would have the more robust adaptation in terms of muscle growth but it doesn't pan out that way when you've really blasted yourself and you have a lot of muscle soreness before that that um, repeated bout effect or the protective effect of having done that previously comes into play you've got all sorts of protein synthesis. It's just like, it's all, you got all sorts of things going on, just trying to repair the muscle. So that's not always the case. If you're doing something that's, um, 
you're used to doing if you're not destroying yourself during your workouts. But if you're training really, really hard, you're someone who's particularly sore, there is a need, I think, to, to match that, the, the training, just the energy expenditure simply on that day. Even if it were cardio, you'd want to have more carbohydrate. But this is a very unique situation where you really want to focus those macro, the macronutrients, both in terms of the calories and then the carbohydrate, and even some fat too, I think, which you can pick up later. That's the interesting thing that hasn't been uh, examined that much is is what things foster faster rates of fat uh, reclaiming or fat deposition post-workout. But we know a lot about the glycogen restoration. So you just kind of look at you, the fact that you've gone in the gym, you create this massive insult with this huge energetic demand, and you're trying to foster growth with that. You've got the insulin sensitivity in place. It makes sense to do that. And then the other days when you're walking, unless you've got some sort of a manual labor job where you know, you're really spending a lot of energy, you might want to counter that with plenty of carbohydrate. Uh, you don't necessarily need the carbohydrate. And if you could eat that, depending on the person, it'd be just fine. Lots of guys do. And I'll add uh, another thought that's kind of related to that because there's so much variability here. This is the thing. Some people do great with high carb diets. Some yeah. people don't. But for some people, this gives them a chance to be, do what I do. For instance, if I'm trying to um, uh, diet down, for instance, reducing my carbs makes my appetite go to nil. It makes it, I can eat almost nothing if I had no carbs. It's really kind of amazing how well that works for me. But it gives people an opportunity to take in fats and, and even be more selective in the fats that they take in. There's a, there is a difference. Not, not all fats are created equal. And this even seems to go beyond just the essential fatty acids being necessary. Those essential fatty acids don't get stored as body fat as, e as easily as do mono are pretty good as well, but saturated will tend to be stored more readily. And polyunsaturated, when they're in the muscle, in the fat cell, when you're losing body fat and, and uh, taking those, fat, those fatty acids out, those tend to be liberated more easily too when you're breaking down fat. So you can sort of load those in on those days. And another interesting, nice fact about uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, they tend to have an uncoupling effect. Most people won't see this unless you take in a ma massive amount, but they increase membrane fluidity and that can, that can dissipate the proton gradient in the mitochondria, just like everyone's favorite or maybe least favorite dietary friend DNP does. It's an uncoupler of oxidative phosphorylation. Um, polyunsaturated fatty acids, found in fish oil, those actually have that same effect. They also do that. So anyway, that's, that gives you a chance to take, put, bring in those fats for those particular purposes on those days and restore any loss of sensitivity that might have come from a massive carbohydrate intake and get yourself ready to be responsive. So, you know, it's not that you're going to, again, defeat thermodynamics. You know, calories are sort of the most important feature of whether you're gaining or losing body fat. But I, obviously, we know that hormones make a huge difference. You take two people take two twins, make one enhanced or one hypogonadal and the other one eugonadal, you're going to see dramatically different changes in body fat and body composition if they were to diet up or try to try to add weight. And that's not a function of, that's a function of biological processes brought on by those hormones. So something can be done with hormones, not just, it's not just pure thermodynamics. People don't often mention that, but the composition changes are, are a function of how those things are handled metabolically in those biological processes. So just managing how and when you take in with a nutrient timing approach, your macronutrients 
can make a bit of a difference. And some of the research suggests that and others don't. A lot of the studies don't. And, but there are a couple of ones that have been done well. And I may sound like a cherry picker, but we're all cherries in a certain sense. <laughs> we're all individual. Everyone's a snowflake. And you need to kind of figure out what works for you. And you guys know as well as anyone. You take one approach and try to do the same thing for everybody, with the exception maybe of high-intensity interval training. I don't know. But, <laughs> but generally speaking, you can't use the exact same approach for everyone. It's just not going to work. It's not going to happen because there's so much variability. And the last thing, I, and I, I made a note to re remind myself to talk about this in the context of metabolic flexibility and insulin sensitivity. There are some studies, really well done ones, where they've take, they take this obese individuals who are dieting to lose body fat. So you're kind of your standard, you know, there's a good reason to study this because these are, this is a health issue for us as a society. And when they bifurcate them into those that have poor insulin sensitivity and those that don't, when you take those with poor insulin sensitivity, so poor metabolic flexibility, and give them a diet that remedies that, so a lower carb, more fibrous, uh, you know, vegetable type of diet, that's the one that tends to work best for those folks. So there's something about the insulin sensitivity, and this is just an example of biological individuality, that's important. And you're, you're, you're keying in on that, maybe whether you need it or not, with a nutrient timing approach, that also does, and this is what the, the research on metabolic flexibility, what little is out there seems to show, is that diets, for instance, where there's a part of the day where there's no carbs, and then the carbs are put in later in the day, comparing that to a day where, where the carbs are spread out more evenly, you see the more metabolically flexible um, uh, metabolisms when someone has sort of split up when they're given fats and carbohydrates. So think of it this way. You can only think of it sort of a like an adaptive stimulus. Imagine if your system is seeing in, in the first three meals of the day, high levels of fats and has to be equipped to oxidize those higher fat loads, so to speak. Later, one other part of the day, we'll just ignore exercise for now. You've got higher carbohydrate coming in. So it has to be ready for that. You're basically training both of those, those systems for, for energy use. And you see that when you do, for instance, studies of, of fat, um, when they take endurance athletes and try to fat adapt them, for instance, see if you can have an improvement in performance. You see those enzymes will upregulate. So it makes sense if you have a, a diet where you've bifurcated the higher fat meals, lower carb meals, and the higher carb meals, lower fat meals, that you're basically sort of training the body to be able to handle higher amounts of those, those macronutrients on an individual basis. And then when you combine a meal, that's a little bit of both, not a problem. But if you spread things out, you've never gotten the stress. So it's sort of like, you know, if all the meals have 100 of each as opposed to 200 on half the meals and 200 on another meal, the 200 is a stronger stimulus for adaptation to be able to handle, metabolically speaking, that higher fat load or carb load. So it makes sense that that would entrain better metabolic flexibility to have, the, have a diet that doesn't let you be inflexible because you have to handle this almost not random, but at least a pattern type of higher levels of fats in some meals high levels of carbohydrates and other meals. Yeah, so. it's it's a super interesting topic. And and I Absolutely. am going to take us off course just for a second, and then I'm going to get us back. What we're probably going to do is we're probably going to stop recording after this next question, but then we'll fire it right back up and we'll make this a two-parter. But I've got a question for you, and this is something that I've been wondering for a while since I met um, Dr. Gabe Wilson. He had done some research, and I met him at the University of Tampa's uh, Human Performance Conference back in like 2014. And he was presenting yeah. on the effects of, I, I think you were there, actually. I think you were there watching. Yeah. Um, 
he was talking about protein synthesis and he was talking about, you know, have a shake after your workout and he measured the effects of protein synthesis with just a protein shake or if you added carbohydrates to it. And, you know, protein synthesis and growth uh, would spike after 90 minutes and then start to come back down just with whey. But if you added like a, a low glycemic carb to that, it would extend protein synthesis out for like three to four hours. And my thoughts were always, okay, well, what if someone is, what would fats do to fuel that process? So the carbs were fueling the process of protein synthesis in the body. I have been looking for some kind of research. I've asked Gabe multiple times and no one's has it out there, but what would fats do? Like if someone was on a keto diet or just low carb, or you just had fats after your workout, do you know of anything that's out there or have you thought of anything that's, that would, you know, make some uh, relevant research to see do fats fuel right. the process of protein synthesis very well? And, and they in the did absence, in the absence of carbs. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that effect. I mean, you can you can prevent that that blunting of protein synthesis. The the quizzical thing about that is that protein synthesis goes up, and even if if amino acid levels are elevated, it will come to a halt unless there's an energy source provided. And when carbohydrates right. that energy source, then we know. So the question is whether fats could also be used as an energy source. Right. Going, and that has to do with the energy status of the cell, and something involved in the signal there. Maybe maybe Gabe. That might not be the question to ask him to get him if you're still in contact with him. I think he's gone into industry, so I'm not even sure if he's doing that kind of research anymore. I'm not sure. It's been but, years um, since I've talked to him. Yeah, yeah, but that would be the thing is to figure out because what's what's going on is there's there's multiple there's phosphorylation involved in the enzymes, which turning them on or off. That's sort of the main way to sort of control a stop uh, valve gap the uh, the flow down the protein synthetic machinery, et cetera, et cetera. And something in there is sensing the energy status of the cell. It's probably insulin related, to be honest. Um, and so carbohydrate obviously will trigger that to some degree. And, but whether or not fats would as well, I don't know. So we'd have to sort of look and see if someone's figured out what that, what that blunting effect is, what's going on. Like what, what is the, what's the source of that mechanistically and whether there's some intersection between that and fat consumption. And that I don't know, but that would, that'd be kind of the place to look. That's my divining rod says it might be behind that tree. Yeah. So you got to look behind that tree and see if maybe there's something there, but I would imagine a large, if, if that's the kind of the going idea is that there's that the large amount of energy is what would, is what would um, keeps things going. The cell is sensing that, you know, without the energy status, it's, and it's maybe even not even sensing it. Maybe literally there isn't the energy there in the cell. That if it were provided the energy, it might it might uh, might bring things back into into. But here's the thing, though: you're probably thinking of you're thinking about someone on like a ketogenic diet, or something of that nature. Possibly, yeah, because if someone's fat adapted, you know, then then they would be adapted to burn fat for fuel. So then you'd have ketones and things of that nature in there. So I, I could see it making sense there. I just wasn't aware of any research showing fat fueling the process of protein synthesis. Like it'd carbs be cool to use different types of fats too. Like yeah, it would. Food, which burns more like a carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Mimic it, you know? Yeah. I would, yeah, I would imagine like octanoate would probably be a good, that's a, that's a good MCT. Um, yeah. Because the MCTs that or the fatty acids thereof, they don't require L-carnitine acyltransferase to get into the mitochondria. So you could probably do that with an MCT source probably would bring about the same effect because it's what's probably maybe very well very much in the mitochondria of what's going on energy status there but I, now i want to know i want to look into that and i'll see what yeah. i can find 
Yeah, yeah. I figured I figured I'd bring it up and and, and I know I, I didn't want to take us too off track. Let's go ahead and get to the next question. If you're following along, this is on page 160 and 161, that area. Um, Scott, let's talk about GDAs and how they can be a beneficial for improving insulin sensitivity. When did you first start to, Jason and I are huge proponents of GDAs. We have been for you know well over a decade now. We've talked about RN multiple times on the show. When did you start to pay attention to GDAs and did you used to think it was quote unquote voodoo bodybuilding or were you, were you immediately kind of interested in some of them? The first time probably would have been about 1998, I think. So this goes like, this is back at the origins of the internet. This is even before intense yeah. muscle. I think um, there's a low carb mailing list that Lyle McDonald was on that I was on. Will Brink was on there. Yeah. Um, and some other people that I don't think are around anymore. Those are the only three I could think of. Oh, there's one other person. I'm blanking on his name though. So, and so people were doing cyclical with ketogenic diets, body yeah. opus style diets. Yeah. Before, when Lyle, what's that? When Dan Duchesne put that out and then I think he yep. had passed away right around this time. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and Lyle and, and uh, Mauro Di Pasquale's book was out. And uh, so people were messing around with that diet and Lyle was playing around and literally logging for the first time you know, his, his adventures in low carb dieting. This is when he came up with the ketogenic diet book. Yeah. And one of the things that people were playing around with because every week, you know, the Monday you'd have the check-in, like, how is your, how is your carb up? This is what I did. This is what I ate. You know, like everyone is experimenting literally every week with this cyclical diet where you'd have just, you know, splurging on the weekends with, with high amounts of carbohydrate. And a lot of people were finding using alpha lipoic acid. And this is exactly what I found that I, this is, this is held, I don't think why I can't think of why it wouldn't hold today versus then is that people would add a ALA in and they could eat X amount of carbohydrates. And when normally they would get, let's say it's, you know, they might use people do large amounts like 2000 grams of carbohydrates. Say they would get to 1200, 1400 and they start to spill over. Yeah. But if they added ALA in there, 200 milligrams, you know, every meal or something like that, they could get maybe that full carbohydrate amount without the spillage. So that suggests at least that something's going on there in terms of glycogen loading. So that was the, that was the first time that I think I started playing around with those. And that one works great in my, my opinion. Yeah. So there is. what, what are your, what are your favorites? And you, you break down quite a few in the book. Uh, we can talk about metformin a little bit too, but uh, whether they're over the counter or whether they're, you know, what are your favorites? I would actually creatine is not a bad yeah um yeah and then with alongside alpha lipoic acid they they work synergistically um so that's a good one um i don't use a ton of them to be honest because most of the time I, I try to do my best to keep my insulin sensitivity in check except when i'm doing a peak week um i probably should start because i'm going to have a big push this this year i think i'm going to push my weight up so i may actually start playing playing with those more it's actually been occurring to me to do that there's a there's a concoction a mount, what's it called it's the mountain dog gda i think that true nutrition sells that has several ingredients including alpha lipoic acid it may have fenugreek and four isoleucine trying to think it's what else is in there um cinnamon it may have vanadyl i'm not positive but it's something that john uh, put together many years ago actually a friend of his did and it's a nice it's a it's a, it definitely has cinnamon actually because you can taste it it's, it looks like it looks like a pill full of cinnamon. Oh, really? Honest. Yeah, but that works really well. That's a nice combination. So, but I am somewhat torn, like on metformin, for instance, and that's where you see this clearest effect that I've noticed. And just paying attention to clients, to friends, people I know who've used it, 
because glucose disposal just means it's getting out of the bloodstream. Doesn't tell you what's actually necessarily happening to it. So, and it varies. There's different mechanisms um, that are involved with what a GDA actually does. It could be that it's, it's, it's stimulating glycogen synthesis some way specifically, and some have been shown to do that. The interesting thing about the research, and this is, this is kind of a, you have to kind of take a step back and let's say you see a study that shows that some particular, let's say it's Vanadyl, increases GLUT4 translocation to the plasma membrane. So that's good. So that may explain why it works with the GDA because you're bringing in more glucose. That doesn't mean if they didn't report that or they didn't measure that, it doesn't have an activity other than that. It may do other things that aren't all that great. And it may be that that is secondary to its primary mechanisms of action. So a lot of times the studies, and they're all over the place. You look, if you put in glucose disposal agent in Google Scholar, you get like nothing. Right. It doesn't show you anything, you know? Glucose disposal, you'll find tons of stuff about metabolism. So it's kind of understanding like why that would happen. Um, I, I had looked, I don't know that there are any glucose disposal agents that specifically activate glycogen synthase in and of itself which would be the ideal way to do that is to have a drug or a supplement that stimulates that. So, it, so in doing so, you would reduce the glucose levels because glucose is being loaded into the glycogen glycogenic complex. So glucose levels go down, the cell takes in more glucose as a function of that. It just sort of flows downhill so, or uphill, so to speak, from the bloodstream into the glycogen storage that you have. That would be awesome. But a lot of them turn on AMP kinase. Yeah. That's what metformin does, berberine does, yeah. curcumin does that to some degree. And that's, that's not the greatest thing in terms of what we want to see when you're trying to put on muscle mass. AMP kinase and um, mammalian target or rapamycin mTOR, they're kind of like evil twins. You know, they don't get along very well. They kind of, they reciprocally inhibit one another. So, and, but in turning on AMP kinase, that's sort of the energy sensor. The, I'm speaking to your your, uh, your listeners, they probably know this. You guys probably talk about all this kind of stuff, I'm, I'm guessing. So let me know if I'm just yammering on with acronyms that no one understands. No, we, we, so. we don't typically get super, super detail. Okay. We, we try to bro it up a little bit, um, okay. but we definitely go into the science. So you describe okay. it however you want. Like our okay, listeners, cool. are, they can follow. Okay, good, good. That's, I just don't want to like, some people are like, well, I listened to him and I just, I didn't have my encyclopedia with me, so I have no idea what the hell he said. <laughs> Literally gotten that a lot. So so but, but what's happening, at least as a, as a main mechanism of action, which is the case actually for alpha lipoic acid, but it's not all that it does, is when you turn on AMP kinase, you stimulate that, you're sending a signal to the cell that there's increased energy demand, which is what happens during exercise. So right. when you're actually, when the muscles are contracting and you're taking fuel like stored glycogen or glucose or fats that are in the cell, and you're oxidizing that, producing ATP, you've got increased energy demand. AMP kinase is activated and coordinating that whole, that whole system of energy metabolism to produce the ATP so you can fuel the exercise. But if you activate that with a supplement, sort of in an artificial way or with a drug, um, you're, you're creating a depressed energy uh, supply or you're sending the signal that energy supply is depressed, so you're increasing energy use and you're pulling in the glucose for that reason as an energy source. So when there's a, when you've had a scenario where you've increased energy demand like that or artificially sent that signal, what happens with increased energy demand is you start using energy like glycogen, which is your main storage form of energy in skeletal muscle cells. 
for the most part. You've got most of it's glycogen. Triglycerides actually substantial, but not quite as much. So there are some people who find when they use metformin that they end up getting on a regular basis, they end up getting really flat, feeling really flat. And they, they sense that and they see it. That's not everybody. So I always like, you may have heard me do this, but I've kind of likened this to the situation that we know is the case for people where some can get away with loads of cardio and, and not lose leg size as they diet down. And cardio, because it's exercise, AMP kinase is being turned on. That is an, a signal that's antagonistic to the muscle growth signal that's brought on by, and this HIT is a nice option actually, because it's closer to resistance exercise. So it's not as, as disparate in terms of what's going on from a molecular basis. So you do long, slow, you know, long duration cardio, that sends a signal totally different um, in terms of increasing mitochondrial biogenesis, probably in terms of muscle size. You see people who do lots of marathon training, they don't have big muscles. It's not needed. It's not necessary. In right. fact, it's a disadvantage to have that. So you turn on AMP kinase with cardio, some people, because of their genetics, various other reasons probably, they will tend to, tend to lose size pretty quickly. That's not the best way for them to expend energy to create a caloric deficit by, by when they're pre-contest, let's say. Other people, I remember uh, Jose Raymond once saying that he was doing like two hours of cardio. Chris Aceto had him like just crank up the cardio. This is before his, I think his knees and his hips got, a, got too bad. And his legs were, were freaking phenomenal. Not a, not, nothing lost whatsoever. Legs were badass. So great genetics. He could handle that. So I think the same thing, I'm sure the mechanisms, there's some overlap because AMP kinase is literally in the center of both using something that stimulates it like metformin and doing cardio. I, I, I think it's kind of the same scenario where some people, they end up with more glycogen. They end up getting a fuller effect and because maybe because insulin sensitivity is what's lacking in them and just increasing that, whatever that effect that has on insulin sensitivity ends up helping them to store the glucose that's coming in from their food as glycogen and the effect on, on energy sort of signaling increased energy demand artificially isn't so much that that causes an issue in terms of the myofibrillar contractile machinery coming smaller and, and sending an antagonistic signal to muscle growth. So it varies, you know, some people do better with higher reps, some people do better with lower reps, some people gain a lot of fat when they overeat, some people don't, there's so many things. So that's, I think, where that, where that goes. But I think what you can do, and so it's not just as simple as a black and white, it's good or it's bad, there's a sliding scale, you know? So if, if let's say there is some effect on insulin sensitivity, we could just separate those things out. And um, there's also an effect on energy demand coming from the MPK. That's not what we want. What we want is the insulin sensitivity. There's probably a variation in the rel those relative effects depending on how much food you're taking in and some of the other things you're doing. So protein, for instance, is anti-catabolic and stimulates protein synthesis. So maybe for some people, if they're going to use something to increase their insulin sensitivity, because they find that helps with their, with their body composition losses when they're dieting down, let's say, they might want to be someone who takes extra care to make sure they got plenty of protein around all the time to offset what negative impact that activating AMP kinase might have for them. So then they can make use of the benefits that ins greater insulin sensitivity has for them um, as they're dieting down. So, so there's a sliding scale and you got to sort of figure out like what things you know, are important for each individual yeah. and how, what dose they can use, all those sorts of things all 
I'll figure in. So, so what about this? And then we're going to go ahead and cut this episode and then we're going to start recording part two. Um, if you've got, you know, ectomorphs or people that struggle to put on muscle. And I do remember reading this in your book somewhere. I don't know if it's this section we're on now, if they struggle, maybe they want to watch things like metformin or berberine that that kind of trick the cell into thinking it's low on energy. So it starts Mm -hmm. burning energy and it burns glucose. But then you got fatty like me. I'm my body. I can be fat as hell real quick. Probably. I don't have a really superpower. Yeah. (laughs) I can be fat. I can put on muscle pretty decently. You know, I'm I'm more endo meso endo probably don't have to worry about any of that. Um, as far as GDA use, I can, I can use it to maintain good insulin sensitivity, definitely use it to cut down, probably not going to interfere with stuff. Is that pretty much what you're, what you're getting to? That's kind of, that's my general suggestion. Yeah. It's it's sort of, you know, if someone, you generally, you do find this, if someone generally the higher body fat you have, when you diet down from that, you're better able to hold on to muscle mass. This goes into kind of the topic of P ratio. Right. You know, the closer you get, you know, to contest, like to get from, you know, 7% to 4%, you know, you've got to drop five pounds and, you know, you lose a lot of muscle. So the relative right. ratio is not that great, but so that's for an individual person, but generally for people, absolutely. I think so. If someone's got, if fat is their problem and then gaining too much body fat because they need to gain 15 pounds of fat for every five pounds of muscle, it's an, horrible ratio but let's say it's kind of that bad then you want to do everything to prevent that and that would be a good possibility like berberine for instance but if you're someone who can't gain the muscle mass eliminate all that stuff you know that's those are the kind of like um kind of people where you just like you know stop walking to class you know like get a scooter you know stop doing any extra activity you're spending too many energy some of those people the need is just extraordinarily high in a lot of folks i think that are naturally quote-unquote ectomorphic not yeah. so much. It's it's the genetics of their natural meat production, and just behaviorally what they do with themselves during the day. So we we've got a couple really good questions left. Um, Jason, do you have anything you want to add to that on the GDA side? I know GDAs are right in your wheelhouse too. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add or talk about? I was about? just going to add uh, that berberine increases AMPK as well. So yeah. you know, um, it's a really effective supplement that compared to metformin. It's in our GDA max, but at the same time, you know, um, it does increase AMPK. So if you are that person um, that stays insulin sensitive and compound carbs and you, you need the calories, like Scott was saying, you know, berberine falls in that, uh, that line of fire as well. Okay, excellent. Um, Let me throw something out there that's interesting because alpha lipoic acid also activates AMPK kinase, but it's also an antioxidant, a really good one. It's actually used to treat diabetes in Europe, or it was at one point in time. They prescribe it. And something that happens with people as they lose insulin sensitivity, you also see greater free radical stress. You can actually, and this is in the book, I'm pretty sure you can expose cells to uh, antioxidants and remedy poor insulin sensitivity, improve insulin sensitivity. So it's a nice combination to have with alpha lipoic acid and that it, it has both that AMP activating effect as well as actually what it, it actually is an antioxidant in of itself and it upregulates endogenous, the endogenous free radical scavenging system. So it increases the level of things, or uh, SOD, superoxide dismutase, maybe xanthine oxidase, a couple of those enzymes that do that. So it's a, it's a multi, it's a pluripotent glucose disposal agent. It's a big word for you. And so it's a really cool one. I think during those 2000 gram carb ups, you're not worried about, you know, having an energy deficit because there's so much food coming in. Take someone, you know, who, for instance, is concerned about berberine and they're dieting down and like their post-workout meals are 75 grams of carbs. Eh, 
you're fine. Yeah. You don't want to do anything, you know, that's going to further depress your energy status. So I just want to toss that out about this, about the mechanisms, because there's a bunch of different things that are worked there. So that's another kind of cool area that's, um, that, you know, I'll continue to explore as my, uh, as I trace down, trace down the rabbit holes. Yeah. And you definitely go into, go into all the details there in the book around page 160 to 161. Guys, we're going to go ahead and shut this down here. Stay tuned. We're going to have part two coming up next for myself, Scott, Jason, we're out here. Thanks guys. Yep.